we are on a cruise of sorts this morning. We're turning the corner from chapter 26 into chapter 27. You remember the close of chapter 26, Agrippa saying to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. To Caesar, O Paul, you have appealed. Festus said to Caesar, you shall go. And so he goes. And this morning we will be going on this journey with the great apostle. And we will uh, see the various things that take place. The Jews were not known as seafaring people. That would mean more of the Phoenicians or other cultures. Other than their offshore fishing, they weren't, they weren't uh, acknowledged as seafaring people. But the apostle Paul is the exception, of course, as you recall. He's been on a number. He's been on three missionary journeys that required uh, different lengths. Even the very first missionary journey from uh, Syria and Antioch, he had to take a boat with Barnabas over to Cyprus. And uh, from there up into uh, the uh, region of Pamphylia. And so we know that he's had several uh, times of seafaring himself. He's, he's quite an experienced man at sea. So he's not a novice. He, he knows what he's talking about, but he's certainly not known as a sailor per se, by his calling and occupation in life. And those are important things to remember as we look at this story together. This story, his journey to Rome, is really comprised of, of the entirety, again, just like it was last time with the series uh, before this. It took a chapter and a half. This takes a chapter and a half to get him to Rome, and that's what we're going to be looking at in a series, Lord willing. And so the Apostle Paul has been on a number of uh, sea journeys, even been, as he says in 2 Corinthians, he's been shipwrecked three times, a day and a night adrift, as he was saying in 2 Corinthians 11.25. So he's been not only at sea, he's experienced shipwreck. He's about to encounter another one. Most of you are familiar with the story. We won't get to the shipwreck itself today, but we will see what leads up to that. And so what we want to do as we're taking this journey is in this segment, we're going to look at verse 1 through 25, and I'm not going to read it ahead of time. We don't have time for that. So I'm going to simply work through those verses, verse 1 through 25, which takes him from Caesarea to Crete. So Paul is, is, has two of his companions, his trusted close companion. He has Luke with him, of course, who's writing this travelogue that we're reading. He also has Aristarchus, the Macedonian Greek there with him, attending to his needs. And so we'll look at that, those things as we get to them. The only way that they would have been allowed to go along on this trip, it's not just that, it's not so much that the Romans are kind, a, a kind-hearted uh, sort of people. It's that uh, they would have had to uh, sort of register or log in, if you will, as slaves According to one theologian, Ramsey's theory is that. And also Bruce says that uh, perhaps Luke was able to register as the ship's physician in order to get on board. So they had to take some measures to be able to be there with the apostle. And Julius wants them to have that, the centurion that's in charge of this journey, journey <clears throat> as we'll be looking at. So 
Our Christianity, if you want to summarize, is replication by imitation. We're imitators of the apostle as we're seeing him go through, but we're imitators of God and we're imitators of the apostle insofar as he is imitating Christ. As we look at these gale force winds and the encounter that he has, the focus isn't so much on the drama that unfolds, and it unfolds, folks. This is quite a dramatic scene. But what you want to keep your eyes on is is the focus that we've been called to hold all the way along as Christians, and that is, number one, on the sovereignty of God, and two, the conduct of Paul. Because the sovereignty of God is pretty difficult to, in a human mind, to justify. If you're calling him, and Jesus assures him twice, we've heard once already Jesus affirm, you must go to Rome. He's going to say it again, and that's going to get repeated in our story. If you must send me to Rome, couldn't you just calm the seas and get me there? No, 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 no. He puts him through a lot, a lot. He's storm-tossed. He's experiencing gale-force winds. Uh, a whole tempest blows up, as we'll be seeing that. So, Focus on the sovereignty of God in every leg, every step of this journey. That God has made these appointments, the same God who through Christ said, you must go to Rome. And so from that, we can learn even more for ourselves in a practical way by looking at the conduct of Paul under that very fascinating and dramatic turn of sovereign events that God appoints for the great apostle to go through. If it's that important to God that he would send his Christ to Paul to tell him in person, you must go to Rome, why not just get him there? I mean, that's a human mind, right? You go in with that, but we know that God is up to something here. He's up to something remarkable, I believe. And so throughout this journey, we're going to have a map up there so you can follow his uh, trails as we go along. So you see in the scripture before you're familiar with these verses, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's the point. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction. So he's not the only one that has affliction appointed as sort of a, a receptive of God's word, God's revealed word in their lives. That's important to me. I want to remember that for myself with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Well, that seems like a contradiction in terms. That seems incongruent, doesn't it? That through much affliction, we receive the word and the joy of the spirit. Well, if we understood the sovereignty of God and the absolute brilliance of his wisdom in what he's accomplishing through those appointments, we'd be more acceptable they'd be more acceptable to us. 1 Corinthians 4.16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. And there's a couple more verses there for you. So, but first of all, we want our attention throughout this journey, however long God appoints for us to take this journey through this text, this record of Paul's trip to Rome, his sovereign control of the weather is, is remarkable here. If, if we don't have that in mind, it won't be quite as impacting as a story. So he is sovereign over the weather, and we understand that. We can see that 
uh, through Jerry Bridges' excellent book where he's talking about trusting God. He has a whole chapter on the, on the God who is sovereign over nature, who is sovereign, sovereign over the weather. And these days, that's important to us. We can't make any sense or find any uh, recognizable pattern to the weather that we're receiving. So, <clears throat> but the point for us is whether to win or wither and weaken over the wild and wearisome weather. I love you, brother. So whether we, whether we, this is our choice, whether we're going to win or we're going to wither and weaken under the wild and wearisome weather. That's just for you. <laughs> Seven W's if you're counting them. <laughs> Chapter 27, verse 1, we'll open with and we'll pray. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Father, thank you. Because you, over your superintendence, your amazing superintendence of the scriptures, have seen fit that this record finds its way into our reading here this morning. Every bit of your word is important. It's important to the whole of that which you've revealed to us in the entirety of the scriptures, from cover to cover, as it were. All of these things are by divine appointment as you work your work of sanctification in every one that belongs to you. So be pleased to continue that work here today. In Jesus' name, amen. So when it was decided, so a number of factors had to come into play before they would make the decision on when to sail. So obviously Agrippa's saying, send him on. He asked for, he couldn't, he was of no use. We don't know what Festus ended up writing in his report, but Festus, as the governor, is sending him on. And so they, for instance, they wouldn't leave if it wasn't practical in terms of weather or other conditions, things like that, or these are, these are cargo ships, so they're loading them with cargo. There's logistics involved there, but also they wouldn't leave unless there's a certain number of passengers and even prisoners to transport. So there's a number of factors. So this is all entailed in that one uh, clause there, when it was decided we should sail for Italy. So they delivered Paul and some other prisoners, prisoners to a centurion. This centurion is a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. So this ship is a coastal ship. Its, it's uh, trajectory is along following the coastline as it's picking up and dropping off passengers, picking up and dropping off cargo, and so on. And so this Julius, is, he's, a, he's an officer. He's a, an officer of the Imperial Regiment. Uh, this is a particular, a special assignment that he has to uh, guard these prisoners. A centurion, you remember, is uh, a supervisor over in the military over a hundred men. And so this was, his, this was his job. His assignment was to get all of these people in the cargo escorted to the ports that they belong, especially the prisoners. So Paul is one of those prisoners, obviously. Verse 2, And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, there he is, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. So this is the Macedonian. 
that was uh, taken in during the a riot at Ephesus in chapter 19, you'll recall. And he's also the Aristarchus who shows up at Jerusalem when Paul takes the offering to Jerusalem, which got him into trouble and got him to where he is right now. So this is Aristarchus. He's with him all the way. So these are his closest, closest brothers in Christ that are tending to his needs. So there's maybe reason to believe that Paul isn't in really good shape by now. There's been many years there's been many things done to him, imprisonments and stonings and weedings and beatings and, and whippings and all the rest of it that you can read in 2 Corinthians 12. <clears throat> so he's had a lot happen to him, and so it could be the case that he needed a physician to go along with him. And the Romans, having a degree of compassion on the great apostle, they treat him with respect. They give him special privileges. There's reason to think that he isn't even uh, chained on this, on this ship, on this trip. And we'll see that as we go along as well. Verse 3, the next day we put into Sidon, and you'll see that on the map. They went up the coast 70 miles along the coast to pick up more car- cargo, drop more off, pick up people. And at that point, uh, the text goes on to say, and Julius treated Paul kindly. Interesting, isn't it? For a centurion of the Roman guard that had never met him before, treated him kindly and gave him leave. So he's free to move about again. This sounds familiar to us. To go to his friends. Friends were the term for fellow brothers in Christ. Those were your friends as God is now a friend. Christ is now our brother. These are his friends that he goes to see. There's obviously reasons to that lead us to uh, be assured that Christianity was well-established at Sidon by this, by this time. So he's not, we can assume, it doesn't seem to indicate he was in chains. The Romans, by and large, were more of an advocate for Paul than they were an adversary. They didn't treat him ever that we have in the record uh, that we know of in a, a mean or a brutal, uncalled-for way. They actually seem to have respect for him. They treat him as a man who is uh, more uh, intelligent, articulate. Uh, He's a Roman citizen and one that they respect. So they're treating him well. Uh, The Jewish part, uh, they wouldn't have had so much affection for or revere over. But the fact that he's a a well-educated, articulate, uh, multilingual apostle is him treated well besides they, he's, the fact of his honesty is, must be striking to them, that there was, was no uh, any substantiated evidence to, according to the charges that the Jews had made. So you remember when Felix, when Paul was imprisoned under Felix, he said in chapter 24, you'll recall verse 23, he gave orders to the centurion that Paul should be kept in custody but have some liberty that none of his friends, there's the word again, should be prevented from, and here it is again, attending to his needs. You'll remember that. So they had compassion on him. They had respect for him. And all of these things come into play, I believe, and with, with what transpires when the storms start to blow up. And you'll see that hopefully as we go along. So they're not treating him like the rest of the criminals. They have respect and admiration probably in some regards for him. And so verse 4, And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were uh, against us. 
Under the lee of Cyprus, that they sailed up the coast and to the east side. They're heading to Italy, so it doesn't seem to make much sense, but it makes nautical sense. This was a rather ordinary route to go and protect yourself under the lee. It means in the protection of the wind. People that are from the state of Washington understand what it means to be on the lee side of the mountains. It's a whole different climate, isn't it? It's a whole different situation. So that's a lot of the shipping held the coast, especially when the winds were coming out of the north or northwest. They would, they would hug the coast. Uh, so anyway, they're moving along slowly uh, in the lee of Cyprus. And they're heading now in a northerly direction, then turning west, as you can see there, verse 5. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. And now Lycia, of course, is the province where Myra is the capital. And it's also a, a very main and important port for the imperial <clears throat> granaries. They received grain from uh, Alexandria. If you look on your map, you can see that as well. It's at the north coast of Africa, and it's due south, nearly perfectly due south of Myra. So Myra was the perfect port to send the grains that Italy needed uh, to that port, and from there they would sail over to Italy and offload their grain. So that's kind of the journey that he's on here. Verse 5, uh, when he's at Lycia, the sailors were aware, too, the nautical track would have been well aware, the seasoned sailors, that the currents in the Mediterranean at that location were in a westerly direction. They're heading west, but they're swinging north so that they can be pulled easily west with the currents and dock at Myra. So that's where we are. This is pretty tame so far. So they're sailing in that westerly direction. So Rome de depended on Africa for its grain, and that's why this was a very, they had, the Romans had their own merchant marines set up, uh, the imperial uh, grain uh, ports and ships. The Alexandrian ship was the one that was supplying the grain to Myra. So he's... Verse 6, there, there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. So that's why the ship from Alexandria is there to drop off or pick up grain. He's probably fully loaded with grain and picking up other uh, passengers and so forth to travel now to Italy. So the centurion placed them on that, that granary. So or that ship. So since it was part of the original or the imperial grain fleet, Julius was able to exercise his authority there. He was able to say, we're coming on your ship without getting any flack from the pilot or the captain or the owner of the ship whose duty it was to take that grain across. So these were these grain freighters weren't small. They were big. They were 180 feet long. They were 45 feet wide, commonly, 43 feet deep. The cargo holds were deep, and they hauled a lot of grain. But they also uh, shipped uh, passengers as well. So verse 7, We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Canidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, 
we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. So you can see that. Are you able to see this okay, this map? Somewhat, yeah. Well, just follow the red line. So Canidus is that point off the... uh, off of Asia Minor there at the very bottom westerly point of Asia Minor. And then from there, they would have sailed due west over into Italy, but something happens here. The winds have uh, changed. So let's see. They coasted along. We sailed slowly, rather, verse 7, for a number of days and arrived with difficulty. So now the story's not so pleasant or not so normal. It, there are things starting to happen. The wind didn't allow us to go further. So now it's starting to be a challenge, even for the sailors, because the winds are changing. They're not as favorable anymore. So they sailed under the lee of Crete. They just dropped down because the winds were so strong out of the north-northwest literally pushed them down to go onto the lee or the safety, uh, the opposite of the direction of the wind on the side of the island of Crete. So they're at Salmone. They don't stay there long. They go underneath Crete, again, to escape those winds, and that's how they end up at Fairhaven. So verse 8, coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fairhavens near which was the city of Lacia. Lacia was about five miles from Fairhaven. They're very close. You're not going to be able to, you might be able to see that, but they're very close to each other. So they're at Fairhaven. So they turned sharply west and sailed to Fairhavens from Salmone. They passed Lacia. There's a harbor at Fairhavens that was a really common harbor to dock in. And so uh, Paul is thinking, since time is escaping, we're going to look at that in, the, in this next verse, but time is passing. The time for safe ship travel is escaping. Because they've run into the difficulties they have so far, they're already off course, and it's getting later in the season. So in verse 9, he says, Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over. So, Sailing on the Mediterranean in the first century was considered dangerous, very risky, any time after September 15th. When it got to November 11th, all the ships went into port permanently throughout the winter until uh, March 10th. And so right now, this uh, the fast, of course, is Yom Kippur. It's the Day of Atonement. And so we can kind of get what the time frame is here. It's held in late September or October, and historians have placed this particular uh, time frame or this particular date at October 5th, 59 AD. So if it starts getting dangerous beyond uh, September 15th, and this is October 5th in 59 AD, uh, Paul's getting nervous, and Paul is saying we should stay at Fairhavens for the winter. We shouldn't go any further. Everyone on board would have known that sea travel is super risky now. So he's encouraging them. Paul's advising them, verse 10, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, 
not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. We're risking all of it. We're risking the ship, the cargo, and our lives if you continue to sail. It's beyond October 5th. We don't know exactly how far beyond, but it's definitely in the, the danger zone too late in the year to take risks like that out on the sea. So even for the experienced sailors. Verse 11, but we don't want to hear, Paul doesn't want to hear that word at this point, does he? But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. So he's taking advice from two men, the captain and the owner of the vessel. So that makes sense, though. I mean, if we if we think about it, because he doesn't really know Paul yet. And there's two words that you should pick up from verse 10 when Paul gives his warning. Remember the words, I perceive. I perceive. This is your opinion, Paul, in your experienced opinion. As a Jew, you probably don't spend too much on this time on the sea. Julius may not know of all of his sea travels. Yeah, we've heard that before, but I'm listening to the captain and I'm listening to the owner of this ship. So we're going to move ahead. Verse 12. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided. So Fairhaven wasn't known as the best place to stay for the winter, but Paul is thinking it's, it's that important that they ought to stay there. So the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix. Phoenix is, you see it at the top on the western end of Crete, right? That they had two ports there. Well, it's about to say a harbor of Crete. This is about 40 miles away from Fair Havens. Facing, they had a, a harbor that was facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Now that sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? They have a harbor that's facing both southwest and northwest. Well, the fact is, up where they were, there was a there was an inlet there that had a harbor carved in that was in the north side that faced south, and they had one on the uh, east side, if you will, a, an area where they could come in that faced southwest. So uh, that southwestern harbor has since, over the years, silted over. It's filled in. It's not there anymore. So some commentators struggle with how they could have one facing both uh, north and south at the same time. It was actually two locations within the city of Phoenix there. So verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently. So they're seeing some favorable wind here now. The south wind blew gently. Supposing that they had obtained their purpose. In other words, we could say made the right decision. Look, at the winds are favorable now. I think we made the right choice. Let's, let's move on. They weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. That's wise. Verse 14. You don't want to see that word but again, do you? Not if you're Paul or the passengers. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster. Where I'm from in Wisconsin, we just referred to it as a nor'easter. When the nor'easter came in the winter down through Wisconsin, buddy, you're in for some serious cold. And 
perhaps some serious snow squalls uh, and heavy, heavy snows. It, they're brutal. They're just brutal. Uh, and they're powerful in this case in the Mediterranean. So this northeaster wind struck down from the land and when the ship was caught, so even though they're on the lee side of Crete, it's making it down off that land. That's how powerful this northeaster is. And when the ship was caught and could not f- face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. We had to yield to it. <laughs> there wasn't anything else we could do. We didn't, they didn't have power motors back then to, to actually uh, betray the winds and... and uh, not yield to them. No, they didn't really have a choice. So this gentle south wind has turned into a very tempestuous, powerful gale force northeaster that simply took them like a cork and blew them south. It's not the direction they wanted to go. You see that? They want to go to Italy. So that's the problem. They gave way to it. So this is where the real troubles begin. This is where the real troubles begin. Verse 16, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, and some texts say Clauda. This is Cauda. We managed with difficulty, I think that's an understatement, to secure the ship's boat. That's the dinghy. That's the life-saving boat. They want to make sure and bring it up on deck so they have access to it. They're thinking we're probably going to go down here. After hoisting it up, they use supports to undergird the ship. These are referred to as frappings. They would literally wrap the hull with four or five cables and tighten and cinch it down because the seafaring vessels back then were made out of wood, wood planks that had some sort of either pitch or something in between so they would be uh, water worthy. But when they're getting smashed on either side of the boat, uh, those things could blow apart. So they they would frap the hull and tighten it down. So that's what they're doing here to undergird the ship, then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis. So the Sirtis, you see the top of uh, Africa, you see Cyrene, and you see Sirtis Major on the left of it. That was well known and referred to as a ship's graveyard because of the shallow shoals and even sandbars. They referred to it as quicksand. It was the wreck of many ships in that area. So now they're really nervous because providentially, did you remember the sovereignty of God? It's like, okay, what are you up to here? I have to get, I have to, get to Rome. You said so, right? And they're blown now to a, a, a place that they knew was very dangerous. So they lowered the gear. And thus they were driven along. So lowering the gear was a sailor's term. It's essentially lowering the mainsail. They can't have the mainsail up if they've got this gale force nor'easter blowing through. It could capsize them. They lower that. They only let stand what they need to navigate at all, but they really are at the mercy of this wind. So they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. So they're all cinched up. They've got the mainsail lowered. Verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. So now the cargo is going. The cargo is going. We're being blown along. What's next? Verse 19, and on the third day, they threw the tackle overboard with their own hands. They're throwing the tackle over. 
Now virtually everything was thrown overboard. Not just the cargo, but everything they could lay hands on to throw overboard. It makes you think of Jonah, doesn't it? At this point. So this is a des- there, this is this has entered the the realm of desperation. It's like it's not about the prophet anymore. I mean, the captain and even the owner of the boat, the people who stand to gain from all of this, all that we want to save now is the ship and the men. So cast everything off, make the vessel lighter, so that instead of carrying all of this cargo, remember this thing is 43 feet deep. It carried a lot of cargo. And so they're, they're throwing it over with all of the tackle so that they don't get bashed and bashed. They go up and they ride up and over the swells. So that's what's in mind here. Verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, that's, by the way, why they said you really shouldn't sail. You shouldn't uh, sail at all after September because it was very cloudy and they would navigate by the stars. Sun, moon, and the stars is how they got through. And he says clearly right here, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, they didn't know where they were. And no small tempest. You're used to biblical language. That means this was a what tempest? A huge tempest among them and said, men, now Paul steps up. Now, is he just into I told you so here or probably not? He's got something in mind when he says, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. What he's doing is verifying that he's legit. There's something different when I speak. I don't speak on my own behalf, Paul could be saying. You need to listen to what I'm saying because God is sending me to Rome. I will get to Rome. But how do you appeal to a centurion, a captain of the ship and the ship's owner? Now they're listening to him because remember the two words I told you to remember first hand, I perceive. That was just his this is my sense of it is we should we should stay at Fair Havens. Now he's standing up and saying, You should have actually listened to me. You didn't listen to me. And now we're all in jeopardy. So in the dreary darkness, remember there's no light, there's no sun, moon, or stars. They can't see anything. They're being pummeled by all of this. They're throwing everything over. They've got to be frantic. Just imagine that in the midst of a tempest, Paul stands up. He's not at Mars Hill where it's a quiet, sunny day with solid ground to stand on. He stands up. So this is way beyond just an I told you so. This is, here's what you should have done. Now listen to me. But he has greater reason for them to call on them to listen to him. He stood up, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and, in, and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart. So he's not mad because he's about to die thanks to them. There's no vindictiveness here. There's no anger toward them. He's telling them in the midst of a tempest, those who wouldn't listen to him, take heart. Take heart. 
where there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Now that gets your attention if you're the owner of the ship. Verse 23, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all, those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. This taking place in the midst of a brutal, violent tempest. So in the midst of this tempest, what do you have? Take note. You're looking at the sovereignty of God, number one. And what's number two? The conduct of the apostle. As we've seen across the board in his journeys, no matter who he stood before, no matter what threat was brought to his life, it's the same steady, stayed, composed apostle Paul. Never a moment to advance his own will, never a moment to, to berate them, never a moment where he does anything short of giving them the truth, and now he bears testimony to the living God. In the midst of this, he bore testimony to the very words of the living, sovereign creator God. This is the God who spoke to him. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Now, I would imagine at that point, everybody listening to this is ready to be converted. They're ready to walk the aisle. Whatever you say, Paul, why does it take that? Why does that have to happen? Why do you suppose that it has to take such abject fear, gripping, paralyzing fear, to have them listen to the living creator, sovereign God. That's what he does. Because I would suggest that in that moment of complete and utter hopelessness, God became real. Man brought to the utter place of desperation. Everything unwound, unraveled in his life. All of the earthly things he depended on. Think captain, think owner, think the rest of the passengers. Everything I held on to as dear is now about to be gone forever, including my life. What becomes important? Who do you want to hear from? A centurion? I want to hear from that guy that was right. We shouldn't have left Fairhavens. If he's talking again, I'm listening to him. Because when he does, those that are trembling with this hopelessness and fear for their lives, listen. Otherwise, they don't want to hear it. If those 
soft southern breezes are still blowing and they're floating along. Hey, can I tell you about the living God? Not yet. I'm tanning on the deck. I'm enjoying this ride. We're going to Italy. I suppose they wouldn't have that attitude if they're a prisoner, but here's the point. When all hope has turned dark, the Apostle Paul brings a great light. That light is the light that you and I carry. We don't dither over, we, we don't dither over what the circumstances are in this train wreck of a situation that we find ourselves in. We're not busy looking around us. We're busy holding on to something above us. A light. A light that has life. To Him who is sovereign over all life. And that's what He brings. God granted you all those who sail with you. The text says, You're all going to make it. Here's the point, right? All those God appoints or intends to save, He saves. That's it. If you belong to Him, if you respond to Him, it just depends on how strong the gale force winds have to bang against starboard or bang against port until that, that, that vessel we created, that's a ramshackle piece, hardly seaworthy. We've shipwrecked many times with it before. It's blown apart. What will it take? And why does it take that? So it's remarkable when you think about it. It's 276 passengers. All 276 make it to shore, as we'll see when we go forward. That's amazing. Isaiah 59.1. We're going to bring this ship into port and prepare for communion. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. Isaiah 43, 7, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. Isaiah 50, verse 2, Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem be? that it cannot redeem. What makes us think that the things that we've surrounded ourselves with in this life can ever rescue us, can ever deliver us? That's a mistake of our own making, isn't it? And so he, he addresses that straight away. Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. You can't trust me? Paul's faith is put to the fire. And he comes out, as Job says, as gold. 
but it takes the fire to do it. No, Lord, you're not. You don't lack power. Your hand isn't too short. Forgive us. Because of God's absolute sovereignty over us, we're virtually immortal until our work on earth is done. Nothing can happen to you. This is something I've seen Paul embrace through this entire journey of his. Isaiah 45, verse 6 and 7, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. I brought on that storm. But you're the same one who said I must make it to Rome. Yes. And you will. Why would you question me? What he's called you to, he will preserve you for. And not a moment less. Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who has made the heavens and the earth. By your great power and by your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. This is the conclusion he wants us to come to. By the verses, the passages we've, re- we've read through p- previous to this. That's the conclusion he wants us to come to. The same one Jeremiah came to. Isaiah 43, 1-5. Fear not. For I have redeemed you. See the past tense? See the one who did it? I have called you by name. You are mine. I love the way Paul introduces this personal God in verse 23. An angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. I belong to him. I belong to my beloved, and my beloved is mine. Nothing can take that away. And so him and him alone do I worship. He's got their attention. I will be with you. When you pass through the waters... I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored. And I love you. Does it get any more intimate than that. Fear not, for I am with you. That to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence 
of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Father, thank you so much for preparing our hearts that we might enjoy a commemorative occasion where we celebrate the means by which these verses belong to us. It is a possession, O Lord, a willing possession, because you've called us to yourself. We thank you. We understand, Lord, a little better why it costs so much to save us. Sometimes you have to turn up the gale force wind. Sometimes you have to allow us to endure a tempest. Sometimes the waves of your providence and our choices, apart from your revealed will, bring the battering on the weak and weary vessels that we've been hiding in. Destroy them, O Lord, that you might come along as we think we're drowning. We've lost everything on this earth that we depended on for safety, for contentment, for deliverance, and you've taken it all away. You've taken it all away. And when we finish this story, you will have taken everything away, including the ship, but you'll have spared every single life to your glory. And you know the numbers. You've given us the numbers. These numbers are important to you. Thank you for that. Ready our hearts now to receive these elements in Holy Communion, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.